we're in a series, uh, this is week three, of a series looking at what, what's involved in the Christ story. We use the word, theologians use the word um, Christology, okay, which is the study of Christ. It's this idea of how do we understand this person of Jesus. If you've ever noticed, I, I remember years ago when I uh, first read a book by John Stott. It's a little book that, that we carry in all of our New Believer packets that we have on each side of the stairways here. There's a little book called Basic Christianity. And um, I remember when I first read it like 15 years ago, something stood out to me that he, he said in there. He said, you ever notice that, that people have one of three reactions to Jesus when they met him, when they really got to know him? Either they despised him and they hated him, they wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and they ran away. Or, or they were in awe of him and they just threw their lives at him. And, and they wanted everything. They wanted to give him everything. But he said, no one who knew Jesus just liked Jesus. He says, you can't like Jesus. <laughs> Meaning you can't just like him. If you really know him, it evokes this extreme reaction. Because he's kind of the center point of really, Christians claim, all of life, all of history. And so we're looking at a passage here in the book of Philippians, which kind of tells us the Christ story. It, it, it encapsulates who Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity, his pre-existence, his coming in flesh, what we call the incarnation, walking, walking into, suffering into ultimately the cross, the resurrection, and then ultimately far into the future when he returns and reestablishes new creation here. And, and this short, tiny little section walks us through that entire Christ story in a profound way, in a poetic way, but in a very articulate and beautiful way as well. So what, what I'd like to do tonight, if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Philippians, and we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, and we're going to pause and look at one, one piece in there in particular, but I want us to read the whole thing in context. Context is always important as we read Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 reads, Do nothing, Paul says, out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. That's, that's the statement. The way that he's going to flesh that out and illustrate it is, is saying, look at the prime example of someone who did that. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then here's, here's that mindset. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the lens that, that, that we're looking at this uh, passage through is this idea of saying, okay, what I've just been told here is that the way in which I'm called to live my entire life 
is to let this inform how, I th how, how God thinks informs how I think. Right? Uh, according to Genesis, we're made in the image of God. We are image bearers. He's a, he's a moral uh, being. I am a moral creature. He's a rational being. I'm a rational creature. He's a volitional or, or a, a being who has will. So I am a creature who has volition and will. I, I reflect certain of these qualities of God in my world. And so he says, the same mindset, the way that I function and I work, God says, I've made you in my image. You will only flourish in life if you follow this. If you live this way, you'll absolutely flourish. But what's tough is it looks totally inverted to us. Because we live in a world which says humility, giving up yourself. Are you kidding? Everything is about self-promotion, right? And that goes back to Genesis, this, this original break there. And so tonight, what we're going to specifically look at, kind of continue. Last week, um, Pastor Dick Foth and Rob Coles and I looked at this whole thing of the cross, right? First week, we looked at the incarnation. Second week, the cross. And I want us to just continue exploring that because... The cross, more than any other feature, Jesus' followers, as they go on and live their lives as they're writing scripture, they keep going back to the cross. Paul, Paul the apostle, at one point says, I, I've committed myself to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It doesn't mean he didn't know other things. He's an astute scholar. He studies other philosophies and religions. What he's saying is, at the center of my life and worldview is this idea that God took flesh and, and was crucified. Somehow, that is the very fulcrum and the point of life. And so I want us to just look at that a little bit more. So in verse 8, we read that, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And then this, this a continuous phrase giving definition of what, how extreme that was, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. He, he, he poured himself out. Um, Paul uses this phrase a couple different times in Scripture. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at you know, verse, verse uh, 8 here tonight. Just a few verses later in 17, Paul says something almost very similar. He says, uh, but even, even as I am being poured out like a drink offering for you, he's saying my life is like ebbing away. I'm giving, it's close to the end. I'm, I'm giving myself away. He's reflecting this picture. Likewise, in 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul writes to this young pastor, and he's using the same language, and he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. We see Paul reflecting this same understanding of what the purpose of his life was about because of this one that he followed. So tonight, I want to ask just a really simple question. Why did Jesus have to die? Um... Well, you know, you go, okay, well, for my sin. He had to die for my sin. Oh, sure, I get that. But I'm saying, why, why did he have to die, right? The cross. Um, does, you know, many people will say, the cross, it's so violent, especially in our culture today. You know, we would say, it's, it's, it's barbaric. It's, it's excessive. It is extreme in many ways. I remember when I was going to seminary, there was a, there was a student named Todd, a guy who I was going to school with, and... Uh, he, he, he had kind of given up on the whole idea of sub, you know, what theologians call substitutionary atonement, meaning Christ died for me on the cross and you know, he substitutes his life for me and all that sort of thing. He, he just said, you know, the cross, that's this barbaric concept. And, and uh, 
uh, I refuse to believe in a God who has this idea that, well, I'm not going to forgive you until, you know, until there's a hanging. I want to see someone hanging until, you know, I, I, that's, that's a vicious God from the ancient world who, who's bloodthirsty, and he just, wants, he just wants someone to die, and then he'll be pleased, and then he'll be happy in some way. So he just kind of given up on that whole concept. Now, you might think to yourself, well, okay, well, let's think about this a little bit. Jesus tells us, remember he tells us, forgive your enemies, right? And then he even attaches something onto it. He says, um, forgive them so that your sins may be forgiven. So he even attaches, like, if you want God to forgive you, you have to forgive others. So, you know, we might ask the question, well, why doesn't God just do the same, right? Uh, why doesn't he practice what he preaches, someone might think. He, he tells us to, you know, just forgive. Why doesn't he just forgive? Um, Tim Keller, who's an author, pastor, he had this great statement. He says, um, someone must always absorb the cost of forgiveness. Because, see, real, real forgiveness, real deep, true forgiveness, um, always, always involves costly suffering in some way. Um, think about kind of like an economic example. I remember when I was um, preschool, I don't know how old you are in preschool, five or six or something, um, lived in Loveland, and, and, and I went to a school, Emanuel Lutheran Preschool, and uh, we would, every day we would bring like our toys to preschool because you've got a lot of playtime, and, and I was hugely into Hot Wheels, you know, like the race cars, and uh, my older brother, Mark, who's like a year and a half, two years older than I am, he had this one race car that I just coveted. It was beautiful. It was a little matchbox car, and, and it, uh, it had doors that opened. And I didn't have any matchbox cars that doors opened. It was just, it was phenomenal. I mean, I just looked at it. I would pass his room and just look. And, and so I remember one day asking, I said, Mark, can I, can I bring this Hot Wheels car to school? Because what we would do is we would take those blocks, those metal wooden blocks, and we would build ramps. We'd run our cars off the ramps, and it, you know, life didn't get any better than that as a preschooler. And so I remember begging him for days and days. And I think I talked to my parents. I'll, you know, come on, Mark. He'll, he'll be good. I'll be very, very, you know, I will be gentle, I promise. And, and so he reluctantly, you know, begrudgingly, let me uh, use his, hot, his little matchbox car that had the opening doors. And so I remember taking it to school, and I was just so excited. It was in my pocket. And it came playtime, and we set up the ramp. And it was my turn, so I'm, you know, I'm revving it up. Like, it doesn't go any faster, but you go like this because you think it, it goes faster. And I went, it went right up there, and it hit. And right as it hit, I saw something. Just go, <gasps> and it was the door. The door had broken. I mean, the very thing that my brother had, like, prophesied about had come true. He said, you're going to break the door. And I said, I'm not going to break the door. How can I break the door? It's metal. And, and, and I broke the door. And I remember the rest of the day just, you know, oh, he's, he's going to be so mad. And I don't, know, I don't even know if I can buy this car anymore. Does this, you know, I got to find it somewhere. How much money am I going to have to pay him? in various different ways, but um, basically there were two options that my brother had. Now, he could demand that I pay for it, okay? I've, got a, I've incurred a debt, I've got to give him some money, or he could refuse to let me pay. That's not the nature of my brother, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, or we could split the payment in some way, I pay this, whatever. but, but there's, there's some debt that's been incurred. And see, notice every option, any option we think of, the cost of the damage must be absorbed by somebody, doesn't it? It's either me, the offender, or, or him, right, the offended. Um, either Mark or I, but the debt doesn't just vanish in some way. 
And so forgiveness in this illustration means um, absorbing the cost of that misdeed in some way. So now, if we were to think about it, most wrongs that, that happen in our lives, um, you can't attach money to, can you? Um, you think of some of the things you know, that happen to us, uh, someone steals your, your happiness in some way, you know, someone steals your, your reputation. Um, maybe it's some aspect of, of your freedom, but a serious injury to you, a serious wrong that has been done to you always carries with it this sense of, uh, of indebtedness, um, that, that someone has a debt and it has to be dealt with. It can't just be shirked away, eh, no big deal. Well, again, there's always two options, right? First option would be make, make the person suffer in some way. Um, we do that in our relation, you know, sometimes we withhold uh, love, we withhold affection from someone, or we might even pursue uh, recompense, you know, them having some sort of pain in their life, which s somehow matches my pain, right? Because you've done something to me, I want you to have some sort of a pain which is close to the pain that I went through. I might say hurtful things to you, uh, I might try to tarnish your reputation, but there's a certain amount of satisfaction that we get out of that when I cause someone else to suffer because they, has, they have caused me to suffer in some way. Now, here's, here's one of the problems with going down that road. Um, you may, as a result of that, you may become harder. You may become more cynical if you do that, if you kind of take it out on that person. Um, cooler, self-pitying. And because of all those things, you actually become more self-absorbed. And so, you know, you even think about things like... Uh, you know, the person who offended you, were they rich? Well, now all of a sudden, everyone who's in that category who has a lot of things, you know, you, you have this kind of immediate um, predisposition of, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't trust those people. Is it someone of the opposite sex? You, you'll, you'll probably never give that person a fair shake. Is it someone of a different race? You automatically develop this almost subconscious prejudice to, oh, th that group of people, those people, whoever they become, and whoever they are, and you become, as a result, just kind of cynical, kind of hardened in your life, okay? So one option is to seek, seek that payment back. The other option, of course, is to, is to not, to forgive is the word we use. Um, this is refusing to make that person pay for what they did. However, when you refrain, you know, uh, lashing out at someone, getting back at them, when, I mean, you want to with all, all of your being, there's, a, there's an element of agony in that, isn't there? I mean, it's really, it's, it's an element of suffering. So it's not just that you've suffered the original hurt, the original damage, you also now have kind of an additional suffering of, of not having that kind of delicious sense of, of watching them suffer in some way, almost, it's almost a consolation prize, right? When you can bring some sort of a displeasure in someone's life who has hurt you. And a lot of people say, I've talked to people who, who have done this in huge ways in their life. They say it's, it's almost a little bit of a death because there is an element of pleasure in resentment, in anger, wishing those bad thoughts on them. And, and to really honestly give that up, it's, it's a bit of a losing something. It's a bit of a death. But it's also a death, people who have gone through this would say, which leads to almost a resurrection, almost a new life. And it can even take a long time. Uh, C.S. Lewis, 
is probably my favorite author. He, he has one book called Letters to Malcolm. This was a, this friend of her, his that they exchange letters all the time just about life and things going on. And he's got this great statement in, in Letters to Malcolm. He's, he says to him, his friend, he says, Last week while at prayer, I suddenly discovered or felt as if I did that I had really forgiven someone I had been trying to forgive for over 30 years. Trying and praying that I might. Um, forgiveness has to be granted, is what Lewis realized, long before it's felt in our own lives. And it can take a long time. Um, now, you might say, yeah, but shouldn't people be held accountable? Yeah, of course. Of course, people should be held accountable. But here's the reality. If you don't first, in your heart, seek to forgive someone, then when you approach them in confrontation and dealing with it, um, you're going to be looking more for them incurring pain than them actually changing in their life, than actual repentance. And as a result, your demands on what you want them to do, hump, uh, hoops to jump through, whatever, your, your demands are going to be excessive, right? And your attitudes are going to be much, much more abusive. Uh, Timothy Keller writes this, Only if you first seek inner forgiveness will your confrontation be temperate, that's a big piece when you confront, isn't it? Wise and gracious. Only when you have lost the need to see the other person hurt will you have any chance of actually bringing about change, reconciliation, and healing. You have to submit to the, and here's this idea again, you have to submit when you forgive to the costly suffering and the death of forgiveness if there's going to be any resurrection. And see, here's my point in, in talking about all this and how this relates to the cross. I think, and I would suggest, that human forgiveness works this way, we experience it in this way, because we unavoidably reflect the image of God. And that's somehow close to, categorically anyway, how he forgives us. So it shouldn't surprise us that in order for God to... to um, save us from our sin, from ourselves, from evil, uh, forgiving us is what we're calling it, he has to uh, absorb that evil. He has to somehow absorb uh, the violence and the evil, and that's what we see, that's what the cross is. The cross is this place of absorption of all of the evils of the world. Now, see, there's a danger. A lot of people in our world will move to this as they think about this whole guy, Jesus, who is he? And the danger is to say, okay, the cross, I get it, I like it. And um, it's, it's a great example of, uh, what would we say, demonstrating love. Um, you know, uh, nonviolent, passive resistance, you know, something along those lines. It's, it's just a beautiful example. Um, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the, the founder of modern-day India, uh, at, when he was a young lawyer, in South Africa, he was very attracted to Christianity. He, he, he was fascinated by this Jesus guy. Um, but at the end of the day, he, he said, it's the cross that I can't stomach. I can't do it. In 1894, he wrote this. I could accept Jesus, Gandhi says, as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, and even a divine teacher. Because see, Hindus, you know, ev everyone's divine. That's fine but not as the most perfect human ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, 
but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue, meaning something that like this grace that, that came as a result of it to us. He said, my heart could not accept. See, even here's the problem. If you take away the cross, you do not have a God of love. Have you ever thought about that? You lose the cross, even though a lot of times people object to the cross because they say, I won't accept, I want a loving God. <laughs> if, you, if you lose the cross, you do not have a God of love. See, in our world, um, real life-changing love always, always costs something, and it involves a kind of an exchange of sorts. Um, you ever love someone who's like really put together? I mean, like they're not needy. They're just, they kind of have their life. Like, find more people like that, right? And you just like, those are the friends we want. I want people who their lives are great and things are, their lives are, that's easy to love people like that, right? You ever love anyone who's really needy? <laughs> you ever love anyone who is, who is emotionally at a place where they're just broken and extremely needy? So you can't even listen to them and stay emotionally intact yourself. Um, now, you can sometimes help them, right? <laughs> but at the end of the day, you will be emotionally drained, won't you? You know, how many of you know people? How many of you are sitting? No, don't say you're sitting next to a person like that. Um, you ever see movies? I, I love movies. Uh, you ever see these movies, action movies, where there's a guy who's on the lam. He's on the run, right? And it's the mob chasing him, or it's some special agents, or, or it's, you know, some secret, you know, group, who, whoever. There's, you know, the, the, the bad government, whatever. They're chasing him, and he's running. And he always goes and he finds someone, right? He always has to ask for help from someone. And if they say no, he could die. And that's the whole crux of the movie. And, you know, we love those. I, I love those movies. But see, the reality is this. For for that person to give some kind of safety and security, um, they're going to have to take the fugitive's danger upon themselves, right? The person who takes him in always puts themselves in danger. They have to absorb the danger and the insecurity that the fugitive is, is in, and the fugitive will only experience uh, more security, more safety, if the helper is willing to enter into that insecurity and that vulnerable place where he's at. Think about parenting. My wife and I have four small children, and one thing that is just blatantly obvious to all of us is that children are born completely dependent, right? I mean, they can do almost nothing for themselves. And they will never live as um, self-sufficient, independent people unless their parents give up tons of freedom for many years. I'm discovering it's many, many, many years. They're long years in many ways. Um, I love it, though. But that's the reality, isn't it? If you don't allow your children to hinder your freedom, whether that be freedom in work, freedom in play, freedom in whatever, if you don't allow them to hinder that, your children, they will grow up physically, won't they? How about emotionally? What will happen to them? Um, they will remain emotionally needy, um, troubled, over-dependent all their lives. To really love your children, you have to decrease for them to increase, right? That's just, that just happens. There's no, it's a choice. It's you or it's them, right? You choose you, they suffer. 
you choose them to become mature, complete, you will suffer in some way. See, all life-changing love toward people who are needy involves this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. You're sacrificing for them. Becoming involved in that person's um, weakness means that their weakness is going to flow to you. <laughs> and your strength is going to flow to them. So the original question, um, why did Jesus have to die? Um, why the cross? Well, answer this question. Uh, how needy are you? How, how, how put together are you? Now, here's, here's a more honest, if you want a more honest answer to that, um, think of the person next to you. How needy are they? How put together are they? Double that, and that's probably a little closer to a self-assessment <laughs> for you, if we were really honest. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, speaking empowered by the Holy Spirit, gave this reflection on how put together the human heart is. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That means you don't even know how needy you are. I don't even know how unput together I am, how messed up, how broken I am. And the greatest deception that I experience in my life is that I'm not that broken, I'm not that needy, I'm not that sick. That is the universal condition of the heart. So what is the answer? <laughs> I was talking to a guy uh, this last Sunday here at church. He came up to me, and, and we were just talking about this previous series that, that we had gone through, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Some of you will remember that. And he's, he wasn't here for it, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm listening online. I just picked up the book, and he's just talking about it. And he said, um, he said I, I, I grew up with kind of the religion model, meaning, and what he meant by that was, it was sort, it's sort of about me being good enough, me paying off this incurred debt that I felt to God, and then God owed me, you know, because I'm doing good stuff, I'm praying, I'm doing all this stuff. Um, he said, and, you know, when I realized that that didn't work, I couldn't sort of pay it off, there was never this sense of rest. He said, you know, I went the, the, the irreligious model, and it was just a path of self-discovery, it was a path of I'm going to be my own savior, I'm going to do my own thing, I don't, you know, I'm going to turn my nose up at God, whatever. And he said, I realized that either way, I ended either in, in pride, you know, self-righteousness, looking down my nose at others, a sense of superiority, or an absolute self-loathing self and self-hating, completely insecure. He said, either one of those models, the religious model or the irreligious model, I ended in absolute pride or just this self-hating place. And he said, um, but this cross thing is different, isn't it? Because, see, what the cross tells us is that, well, two truths. The two truths that I don't think anything besides the cross holds together. And one, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. You're more lost. You're more broken. You're more messed up and unput together than you ever dared believe. That's the cost of the cross. That's why he's hanging there. And yet, you were more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. Because why did he do it? Let me end with a, uh, a story. Um, Patty uh, Chayefsky was a, a brilliant, he just passed away um, 
a decade or so ago. Brilliant playwright, novelist, uh, storyteller. He's the only person to have won three um, solo Academy Awards for, for best screenplay. All the other guys, uh, guys like Woody Allen and Francis Ford Coppola, won, but with co-writers. He's the only guy who, who, who could do it himself. And uh, he was a brilliant guy. And in his own words, he said this, I've lived my life as if God did not exist. It's been life of waste and wandering, a life of womanizing and debauchery, a life of total self-centeredness. And I've used others for my own selfish purposes. If there is a God, Patty said, I know that he has written me off as a total loser and he is dispatching me straight to hell. And one night, Patty was, as writers oftentimes do, secluding himself, writing in his Park Avenue apartment. And the living God comes roaring into his life as he's sitting at his desk like a hurricane. And he experiences both with his heart and with his head this, this wild, passionate, pursuing love of God. And it just blows him away. And, and he's living in this place of just ecstasy that there's this extravagant, almost uh, careless love of God. And God has loved him just the way he was, not the way he's supposed to be. And do you know what Tchaikovsky did? The manuscript he was working on, the novel, he ripped it up and he threw it away, and he sat down at his desk, and for three weeks, he worked on one project, this idea that was birthed in his head, which uh, this book was called, or the uh, screenplay was called Gideon. It eventually ran on Broadway for two years very successfully. And in this play, Tchaikovsky projects himself into the lead character of Gideon, and his own kind of decisive encounter with God, he portrays it in Gideon. And Gideon's not in a Park Avenue apartment, he's out in the desert. And Gideon's in his tent, and he feels so hopelessly abandoned and rejected by God. And it's well-deserved, because uh, his life is just, it's nothing but a song to himself. Uh, it's been a life of using and abusing people just for his own pleasure. And as he thought about it, Gideon said he, he couldn't think of one genuinely kind, good, beautiful thing he had ever done for anyone that didn't somehow, it wasn't motivated in it for him, for who he was. But that night out of the desert, the God who had made Orion and all the stars comes bursting into the tent with Gideon, and he tears into Gideon's life, and he experiences this, this unconditional love that God has for him. And he, he, he comes to himself, almost like the prodigal son. And he saw that God loved him for who he was, not for who he was supposed to be. That God loved him, he writes, in the morning sun and the evening rain. Um, and Gideon's he's blown away by this. It's not because of his fidelity or, his, or of his infidelity. It's not because of his worthiness or unworthiness. He, he loves him. And, and Gideon's just blown away. He starts jumping up and down. He starts shouting. He's screaming. He can't sleep. And he's pacing back and forth in his tent all night long. And finally, the very first shaft of light from the sun comes up, and there's dawn. And in the play, Gideon cries out these words, God, oh God, all night long I've thought of nothing but you, God, nothing but you. I'm caught up in the raptures of love. God, I want to take you into my tent, wrap you up, and keep you all to myself. God, would you tell me again that you love me? And God answers, 
I love you, Gideon. Say it again, God. Say it again. I love you, Gideon. He's broken. And finally in the play, Gideon, he's kind of come to, and he scratches his head and he says, I don't understand, God. Why? Why do you love me? And kind of tongue-in-cheek, the author has God say, Gideon, I really don't know. <laughs> and then he adds, my Gideon, sometimes passion is unreasonable. <laughs> sometimes, my Gideon, passion is unreasonable. See, there's no good reason why God should love us. Um, but he does. And whether it's in a Park Avenue apartment or a desert or wherever we sit during our day, we can come to ourselves and experience this extravagant love which would say, you are more wicked and broken than you ever feared. And yet you are more loved than you ever dared hope for. Let this same mind that was in Christ be in you. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. This is the way of an apprentice. This doesn't just inform how you live, you guys. This, this is how you live. He poured out his life, culminating in the cross. So here's a question that I want us to just be challenged with. And I want us to pray, and then I want us to sing some words that would call our hearts to reflect on this idea of the cross. He poured his life out, you know, culminating in the cross in this picture. How can I pour my life out in my current responsibilities and in my current relationships? Um, if you're not rocked by the extravagance of the cross, you haven't experienced it yet. Or you've forgotten. It's been a long time. And so here's what I want to challenge us with tonight. What does it mean to empty yourself? Um, will your interactions tomorrow, as you enter into all your responsibilities, your relationships, will your interactions point people to a relationship with this one which is absolutely life transformational? Will all the conversations you have point them in that direction? What is your mission? Is it, the, is it, is it really pouring yourself out? Because honestly, for me, as I look at it, there's a lot of areas in my life that my mission in this area, it's not about pouring myself out. It's about self-grasping. It's about being fulfilled, meeting my needs, using and abusing, exploiting in small ways. But it's still about that at the end of the day. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we desire more than anything else, God, to be honest people. Father, we desire to, to be those which would be so impacted by the extravagant love of a God who would leave all for our good. And God, as, as we think about what does it mean, what does it mean to really pour myself out? Would you bring things to mind, God, areas of our lives that right now it's not about others. It's about self-promotion. 
And God, we want to be changed so that as we, as we leave this place, God, as we go into, back into our relationships and responsibilities, on a practical level, we would make that decision to suffer, to pour ourselves out, and to experience your extravagant love just pouring over, out of our own lives, and into the lives of others. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to sing just as a, as a declaration that God's love is extravagant. And then we're just going to spend some time being together as a, as a community, okay? Okay.